2, Seven Heads, Ten Horns, with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back to Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only podcast history of the devil. I am Klaus Yoder, and with me, as always, is Travis Stevens, my good friend and collaborator in diabology and all manner of literary heresies. Travis, how are you doing today? I am super excited. I just got back from a little weekend getaway, and it was in the Russian River Valley, which is this wonderful place to be for many reasons. But I got super lucky because while we were there, we... We got the tail end of our traditionally long Northern California summer. And so mm. I got to splash around in the in the water and really enjoy uh-huh. that. But then the day that we came back, it turned super cool and sort of autumnal and got to uh. have some, you know, all those like pumpkin spice vibes that everyone is <laughs> obsessed with on the way back. So it's just right. Yeah. So you really threaded the needle is what you're telling me. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Perfect. Perfect. Do you have a do you have a take on pumpkin spice lattes and pumpkin spice things? Are are yeah. you for it? Are you indifferent? Are you what, what what's your stance? I feel like the joy of the moment, the seasonal moment, as reflected in the pumpkin spice business, was a nice thing. But the obsession with it kind of takes away the subtle joy that it once like held and so i think it's a little bit spoiled the pumpkin spice part not the seasonal change the seasonal change is great um but i feel like absolutely i'm i'm not into the overblown love of pumpkin spice how do you feel well i you know it's been going on for probably 20 years or more right yeah and so i don't think i really was aware i'm not a I'm not a big Starbucks customer. Mm-hmm. I do go to Starbucks sometimes to protest and inform customers about their horrible labor practices, but uh, yes. that's, that's, a different, that's a different thing. <laughs> I don't get a lot of their coffee that often, but uh, I do think, I think maybe they've worn me down. The internet's worn me down. And so when I go to a local coffee shop and chocolate shop, uh, Lagusta's, uh, we, were, we actually actually took you the last time you, we were, you were in town here. Oh, in, so great. Yeah. Yep. I do get the pumpkin spice there. So I, it has, the, the, the virus has infected my brain <laughs> in much the same way that a certain virus affects the brain of the character of the book we're going to talk about uh, Oh, today. transition for the win. <laughs> Loving it. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're doing our book club BS here. And I, I'm just also sick. Like we read the, the Klausmann Mephisto novel. And I had to talk about Thomas Mann a little bit for that. And by the time we finished recording the episode, I'm like, oh, I got to read. I got to read the Thomas Mann Faust story. Now I got to read Dr. Faustus. And literally like a year ago when I first started thinking about this Faust stuff, I was like, there's no way I'm doing that book. It's like too big. It's too scary. <laughs> it's too Thomas Mann. It's too German. Like I just, I can't, it's, it's too much. And here I am <laughs> a year later. <laughs> 500 pages into this this novel mm-hmm. in media race talk about yeah, it for yeah, sure in media race exactly so this is like this is like a football game this novel and this is the halftime report that's what we're doing here today and so <laughs> <laughs> i haven't finished re- that's a, that's a that's like a, a, a sportsy way of saying i haven't finished reading it yet but there's like so much going on that like i feel like if i waited till the end of it i would i would like miss out on cool stuff 
and I would lose track of some of the great devil stuff that's going on. So that's that's what we're doing. So this is a 1947 novel written in German by Thomas Mann, the sort of the great novelist of early 20th century Germany. This is his last novel. He actually even wrote uh, account, an autobiographical account of its composition two years later. He published it two years later. He sort of recognized that this was the sort of end of his career. He had planned to do a Faust story for most of his career. And so he wanted to go out with sort of lead, shepherding the discussion around this novel himself. And I'm not reading that, at least not yet. But just that's something to sort of keep in mind. That this is like a very... I'm going to list all the things I'm not reading here. Uh, but yeah, we're also not diving into like the billion miles of critical scholarship that exists on this novel. We're reading it in the context of our podcast and the year's worth of potting and research we've done on the Faust story. So take that. Um, <laughs> that's uh, that's like a methodological uh, clearing and an excuse for not like going blind looking at PDFs for three trillion years. So yeah, that's take it. It is what it is. Um, take it or leave it. If you're really bummed that we're not getting into every debate that's been had about this novel. You should stop listening right now. Um, but for everyone else who doesn't care, which I suspect is most of you, um, yeah, bear with us. Um, so, yeah, 1947, this book comes out. Dr. Faustus, written in the United States. Thomas Mann is in exile from Nazi Germany uh, with a bunch of other German intellectuals who help him, like, give him a lot of information about this book. So... There is Arnold Schoenberg, who is this big figure in, in classical music, who whoop, is like whoop. the shout model. Shout out, shout out. Oh, yeah. You're, Travis is a fan. Travis is a fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was like a Schoenberg Institute where I did my music degree in undergrad. So, um, of yeah. Of course. Because California. Because it. it's all California, right? Yeah. All these guys end up in California. And so uh, the philosopher and musical theorist Theodore Adorno is also consulting with Mann to help him understand music theory, music theory, music theory, why all the music theory stuff. So this is a Faust story set in early 20th century Germany. And instead of the Faust character being like uh, academic, like philosopher or natural scientist or, you know, however you want to sort of see the Faust character and all the things we've seen before, mostly like a kind of academic uh, polymath. In this case, the Faust character is a composer, a composer of classical music. And we'll talk a little bit more about what's going on with the link between the devil and music, but that's something to flag. There are a lot of characters in the book. I'm going to just talk for a minute about the two main characters. So the first is the narrator, whose name is Serenus, Serenus Zeitblom, or Zeitblom. Um, I'm going to try. I, I, I'm probably going to just do it in a half-assed German accent. Instead. Oh, that's I'm the best to, German you know, accent Switching back and forth. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's what I get to do after reading this book in German. I get to, I get to pronounce it however the fuck I want to now. Um, but that's what we're doing. Yeah, you earned it. And you what, earned it. Yeah, yeah. He introduces himself when he starts... He introduces himself in the second chapter... And he introduces himself with his with his professional and academic title and credentials as like a doctor of philosophy, which is like really just I really expresses something about him. I think he's this like sort of philological humanist, like upper level high school teacher in, in, in Germany and other European countries. It's called gymnasium, which is like this sort of college prep elite, like humanist, like sort of preparation for university. He's doing this in his hometown of the fictional Kaiser's Ashram, 
So he's kind of gone back to his hometown. And he's telling this story of his best friend, Adrian Leverkusen, during the end of World War II. So he, like, bombs are falling as the, as the Red Army is marching west and the United States and, and the Allies are invading from the south. And so he is doing this over a decade after his friend has passed away from illness. So the person he's talking about is Adrian Leverkusen. And Ad- Leverkusen is this like mysterious figure. He is kind of a prodigy. He is really gifted academically. He's very, he's very standoffish. He refuses to, in German, there's like a formal way of saying you and an informal way of saying you. And he and then there's an even even more old-fashioned formal way of saying you and he will default to like the more the, the like the 16th 17th century way of saying you wait okay um, now i need to know formal. i'm gonna have to interrupt you yeah. i think all of us are dying to know what this archaic you formal you form is because we of course all know about do and z but yeah tell us more exactly right yeah so the informal you is like thou is like do and then there's z uh, S I E. And then I only know this from like reading like dedications to Royal people in 16th century books, but they would use for formal, for a formal first person or for a formal second person ear, um, which is, which is like, yeah, is, 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 is a different thing. Is that but the, yeah, you, so that's you plural, right? So it's like closer to mirroring yeah. French in the using the you plural for the formal, the, the, the second, the, the second person plural yeah, right. is, is okay. how that is now. Cool. Which to me sounds less formal because it's it's actually it's it, it it would read as like less formal now, but it it's more formal in context. So it's it's very strange. So anyway, he's like this person who's like really gifted at school, and he's like the teacher's worst nightmare because like even though he is at the top of the class and everything, he does not give a shit, right? So it's like it's like someone who's smarter than you in the classroom who is sort of disdainful of like the whole thing. So you know, we, we've both been engaged in education in different ways. Like that sounds like sort of a nightmare as, as a teacher. Although I think we probably approach our teaching differently than like the gymnasium layer of, of the 19th and 20th century. We're probably a bit less authoritarian, but in any case, um, it is what it is. Everyone's had a disengaged student who sort of makes you feel stupid for even talking. So, you know, that's that, you know, yeah, we all know the real ones know. So these two, these two kids, they are like, they have the weirdest relationship. They're really close. Adrian only uses do with, with uh, Serenus. And it's just, it, but it sort of seems like it's just because they were little kids when they first knew each other. It doesn't, it's not like born out of any special affection. And they are at once like inseparable and distant. Like they never talk about feelings or relationships or attractions to other people. They talk about like culture and intellectual stuff they're both like overachieving gymnasium students and so there's like this weird disconnect in the book because something that that Zeitblaum uh Serenus will say is that he is kind of stands at a remove from his own life because he wants to pay attention to his brilliant friend he wants to like observe his brilliant friend and then he wants to record the sort of for posterity the life of his brilliant friend so there's like this sort of like self-denial and like, like codependency doesn't quite capture, but like just like this weird obsession between 
between uh, Zeitblom and, and Adrian. Can we compare Almost to... Kind of un- yeah, go ahead. Can we compare to, like, Holmes and Watson, right? R- Watson, the recorder yeah. and sort of worshipper, uh, intellectual worshipper of Holmes, or not really? Similar, but I think even more distant. Got it. it I think there are times in the Holmes-Watson relationship where there is that sort of level of indifference from Wat- from Holmes to Watson. I'm just, like, so Jeremy Brett-pilled from watching the Jeremy Brett Masterpiece Theater, Sherlock Holmes ones that they like Jeremy Brett, like gives Sherlock Holmes like so much more emotion than I think that comes across in the texts. And so um, I don't really think of him that way, but I think you're right. There is something to it, but I think it's even more, even more fucked up than that. Basically. Um, I, I would say, so I will have occasion to mention Jeremy Brett again in the course of this episode. Oh, good. We were all, um, so, we were all hoping for so, that. I know I yeah, was actually. Yeah, so yeah. The, the, the goat, the goat, Jeremy Brett. So anyway, uh, moving along, um, during their time in their hometown, the two get exposed to, through a series of lectures put on by some like local society, they get introduced to composition and musical theory from, and I love this as someone who is Pennsylvania Dutch from Pennsylvania or grew up in Pennsylvania, uh, from this Pennsylvania German music teacher, uh, Kretschmar, who gives these like really intense lectures that the kids go to when they're sort of like 12 or whatever. And they're kind of like, they can, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but they, they're, 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 they're really sort of obsessed with the lectures and Kretschmar, Kretschmar is a stutter. And so he has like, he's like, at once, like he's like a really engaging speaker, but like has like this sort of this, uh, this thing that's like always interrupting him. And I'm not going to go off about what that could mean from some sort of close reading of mine at the moment. But anyway, it's something to note. And basically after, Adrian develops some skills with composition. He's sort of like, he's sort of self-taught and begins learning with Kretschmar a little bit. He goes off with uh, Zeitblom to study at the University of Halle. And he, even though he has like all these impulses to study music, what he ends up studying is theology. That doesn't last very long. He is part of like this like sort of christian theologians like like social club they go out like on big hikes and they they debate and they go to the the bar and they they sort of have this sort of the stomtish like sort of thing going on and like he kind of drops it and then goes to study with kretschmar full-time in the city of leipzig and the city of leipzig is a critical faustian sort of setting it's where faust and mephistopheles have their first adventure in this one tavern this one sort of wine bar it's where Faust and Mephistopheles like ride this giant like keg of wine like out of out of this uh, this Auerbach Keller place. It's also the it's also the the city where Adrian has his own first devilish encounter and temptation, and we'll we'll sort of talk about that more. One other thing to say here is that we just did Klausmann's Mephisto, which in Klausmann is obviously Thomas Mann's son, and they had a really really not healthy relationship. Um, both are responding to Nazism and the Nazi period in German history in real time, right? I mean, Mann is writing during the end of World War II. Klaus is writing right before it's really kicking off in the, in the mid-30s. But it's interesting to see how they react to it differently. For Klaus Mann, the moment of the rise of National Socialism is this, this sort of moment of of temptation for people in the culture in arts and in and, and literature. It's a moment where you could do the right thing and live like a hard life in exile, or you can make your deal with the devil. And it's about that kind of careeristic temptation. But for Thomas Mann, it's a lot 
bigger it feels like it's like there's a grander history of german society and culture that's being worked out through allegorical figures in the novel and the novel is like in some way like trying to explain how german culture and the german people like found themselves with hitler as their fuhrer and so it's just i don't know it's just weird that both father and son take up this this sort of meta myth in in german lit and it's just something to sort of keep track of like what's different between those two um so yeah so one thing i mentioned earlier was that they have the both uh leverkuhn and zeitblom are like really into these music lectures and i want to talk to you about this travis because like we've like education and learning are huge topics in this novel and one of my favorite passages is when Zeitblom is remembering going to these lectures and listening and talking about the energy of like wanting to learn. And so I, I wonder if you would, if you would do us all a favor and read this one passage that I sort of marked out here from, from the recollections. I'd love to. Yeah. I interrupt myself in my reproduction to remark that the lecture was talking about matters and things in the world of art, situations that had never come within our horizon and only appeared now on its margin in shadowy wise through the always compromised medium of his speech. We were unable to check up on it, except through his own explanatory performances on the cottage piano, and we listened to it all with the dimly excited fantasy of children hearing a fairy story they do not understand, while their tender minds are nonetheless in a strange, dreamy, intuitive way enriched and advantaged. Fugue, counterpoint, eroica, confusion in consequence of two strongly colored modulations, strict style, all that was just magic spells to us. But we heard it as greedily, as large-eyed, as children always hear what they do not understand, or what is even entirely unsuitable. Indeed, with far more pleasure than the familiar, fitting, and adequate can give them. Is it believable that this is the most intensive, splendid, perhaps the very most productive way of learning, the anticipatory way, learning that spans wide stretches of ignorance? As a pedagogue, I suppose I should not speak in its behalf, but I do know that it profits youth extraordinarily, and I believe that the stretches jumped over fill in of themselves in time. So yeah, Whoa. I just I thought I thought that was like a really sort of beautiful, honest reflection on what learning, what make, what makes learning worthwhile and what it's like. But yeah, just like wondering like a lot. This is like a what you would call like a Bildungsroman. It's like a story about someone's formation and their education and how they turn out. And so education is really important. And that's like wondering what how you reacted to this description of like the sort of the charms or incentives of learning. So. I got asked a really interesting question by my partner, Carrie, recently about how I try and learn um, a foreign language and what it's like in particular to listen to spoken speech in a foreign language that you're learning. And this idea of um, the secret or something that is revealed but not fully understood is really analogous to how I answered him. I said, mm. you know, well, it depends on your how much you know of the language, how you listen, and what you're looking for. But 
you know, in short, of course, I describe signposts, you know, where are the familiar words that you do know, and then not obsessing with the words that you don't know, letting it kind of sink in, and then leaving some space and understanding that you're not going to understand every word when you're in that intermediate phase of language learning. That's not possible. And in fact, if you obsess over every word, you're not going to achieve fluency at any point, right? You have to let go a little bit as part of the... And so when I read this passage, that conversation came to my mind in the sense that um, there's an excitement in learning a new language as something is slowly coming um, unveiled for you, but is not complete, right? There's this excitement of what could be. There's a little bit of mystery that's involved. And similarly, I think this pedagogical moment of having things explained to you, but not yet being able to fully grasp their import is exciting. There is a, mm. there's an erotics to this, right? And by that, I mean mm -hmm. a desire for that. The desire for learning is really palpable at that stage. Um, yeah, I loved this. I thought it was just, yeah, um, I know I, I, I did too. I really did. And I know we usually it's like focus on like sort of spooky, like hokey devil stuff, but I really appreciated this, this reflection on, on learning because it's like, so it, like it, he gets at what makes it worth why learning's worthwhile at all, like the pleasure in it. And it's also, there's a dark side to it too, though, because Adrian is like sort of self-taught and is also, once he gets like formal training is pushing himself to his limits to learn what he doesn't, what he's, what he, you know, like what isn't, learnable yet and so there's also the kind of faustian side of this too this is like sort of the faustian side in utero a little bit where you're trying to like you want you have this desire to be able to understand what you can't what you can't understand yet but i i agree i think foreign language learning is like a great example of thinking about this where there's you can when you hear fluent or, you know, like proficient speech in another language that you're learning, it sounds like magical. Like it sounds, it's like incredible. And, and it is, it's, it's, it's enchanting. And I also think that this is a little different. I can imagine this like too with kids, like when you, or, or, or even older students or college students or graduate students, where you, you start to imitate the way your teachers, your sort of charismatic teachers talk, you know, <laughs> and you don't, maybe you're, you're drawn in because like, of course you can't know everything that they're saying when they're lecturing but the, the sort of, there's like a moment, there's like a flash of recognition that's maybe very fleeting, but sort of draws you in. And I really, I just, I, I thought it was a totally beautiful passage that, um, and I don't actually don't know if Thomas Mann really did a lot of teaching. I, I, I don't, I don't think so. So it's interesting to me that, to read it. Um, that's something I should probably check up on. Um, well, I'll have another like editor's note about, but yeah. You know, the perspective is, so emphatically on the side of the student who doesn't yet know the yeah, that desire yeah. so it wouldn't surprise me necessarily because this is the excitement of learning not teaching where how do you right there there yeah, is totally there right. is the unknown as a teacher right um that does appear but it's a much more spectral thing <laughs> because usually <laughs> once you move into lecturing mode you only reference in passing the things that you don't know rather than um evoke them in this kind of world making which is the realm of at least what you're familiar with if you don't of course you know have full mastery over something obviously but um yeah i think that's that's a great point that's well taken just to transition a little bit i would i mentioned that they go and or at least adrian goes to learn theology and early on when they're talking about music when they're before they go to university adrian's like oh we're we have this problem in our culture 
because culture has become disconnected from cult. And he's like, this, this is actually like a fundamental problem with, with, with art and music. And like, I need to understand the cult part before I can do the culture part. And so he goes and studies theology and he's he's his family's like what they would call in German, like evangelisch, or just what we would see as Lutheran. Um, and Zeitblom is a, is a, is Catholic. And it's, so that's interesting. And I only mention it because Zeitblom doesn't study theology and like has a kind of, even though he isn't an atheist, he's not like a super modernist or like sort of secularist kind of person. He, he actually sort of reproduces or recapitulates like almost like an Erasmus figure. Who's like someone who's like, who's a Catholic, but he's, he's ironic. He doesn't want intense controversy. He doesn't want like people squabbling over theological precision. He's like, he like loves the beautiful things. Right. And he like wants, you know, he just wants it to do, what it's supposed to do, which is to like, you know, bring people into communion and, and, and to honor God and all this stuff. Like, so he doesn't have an appetite for like the sort of dialectical, like sort of like sharpness of the whole thing that, that Adrian does have like a little more, more appetite to, but Adrian never quite fits in with these Christian bros uh, at, at university. And so when Zeitplum's recounting this period of this life, he sort of, he makes fun of a lot of theology professors and he no, he sort of notices that a lot of these lectures on like moral psychology and theology are like devil obsessed and de- demon obsessed and like are are like in weird ways like sort of really invested in this kind of tragic and often bloody confrontation between good and evil that like good is to confront evil and like yeah like people are going to get hurt the witches are going to get burned but like it's all for the good, <laughs> and, uh, and he's like he's like he he's a little bit worried about this, and and um, but he also has like sort of a he's there's that, but he's also like he's critical of the complacency of the theology students who he observes on these hikes through like the German countryside and stuff, and he's like there's like something paradoxical about their existence because they're like occupied with like this really abstract like esoteric mysterious stuff like the secrets of the universe and God and everything and history. And yet they're on their way to like some of the most boring jobs that he imagines are possible, you know, like working for the state church because like it's a, the, the church is like state run, like at this point in, in Prussia and in, in the German empire. Uh, like if you were, if you had a church job, you were, a, you were a, a, you were Beamte, you were, you were like a, you know, a civil servant. Um, and so, Again, this sort of for me, it's a different angle on the meaning of youth and education in this book. So he's like pointing to university and like studying, you know, philosophy and theology and this stuff. It's like this time of energy and excitement, but like he's also anticipating inevitable disappointment, resignation, like routines, like having to work a job. And, and then on the other extreme, the dangers of pushing the intellectual and artistic interests of youth to their logical conclusion in this novel, A Deal with the Devil. And we'll talk about that more later. But like, again, I'm like, what is the role of education and higher education in our context when we sort of read this novel or read our time through this novel? What does it mean that we are encouraged to be filled with wonder and creativity early on and then like banished to like drudgery thereafter? Like, I don't know. It's obviously a question that we... We, we sort of deal with it like almost on a more existential level sometimes, but I was just wondering like your response to it. Ah, very, very big question. I think there's something healthy about considering higher education 
as formation, as part of what makes a human being whole. But there's, of course, a danger there too, right? University education, the elitism that's involved, that it's not accessible to everyone, and the forms of higher education that are the most accessible in the United States at the moment are, of course, community colleges, which do certainly provide some grounding in um, in the humanities. But for most of them, that's not the reason people go. And you know, um, community colleges are seen by many folks as a stepping stone stone to higher paying jobs. The necessity, right, that's right. the engine of the economy at work on what had been in the past. Um, the exciting imagination filled exploration of knowledge and of what's possible and shaping thinkers and citizens of the world and citizens of the state as well, right? That it, it performed several different functions at once. Yeah. What do you think, getting a little bit maybe back to the novel, what do you think the exchange is between where we sit and, and especially where you sit, Klaus, in your professional role and what the novel is saying here about mm. the meaning of this, this moment and the temptation that occurs later on to follow that dream of intellectual exploration mm. to its limit and even to make the Faustian bargain. Right. Yeah, because it does sort of seem to set up the pursuit of creativity as if it's serious, as inevitably leading to some kind of deal with the devil. Like that that seems to be a central preoccupation or argument that the novel is making. So yeah, I think that's 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 well framed. In terms of how this novel how this this moment in the novel speaks to like teaching and teaching at a college and these sorts of things. What you said about the community colleges, people see it as a stepping stone to higher paying jobs and to professional professional life or white collar or sort of or sort of a high skilled technical stuff. What's what's interesting is that that's becoming basically indiscernible from uh, elite colleges. I mean as as elite colleges are have like sort of are like more are trying to diversify in terms of uh, like class and 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 race and all sorts of things and just and even beyond that just the people who are traditionally do have access to this education there's a desperation to come out accredited and ready to be a high earner which in many ways is 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 logical but um does speak to a uh like depleting or sort of loss of emphasis on a lack of emphasis on the humanities and the idea that you go to universities you were saying to like sort of be formed and formation like that really is rapidly slipping away and i'm sure it would like the ad idea would be a total nightmare to, to like sort of the german intellectual mandarins that were in sort of in mon's uh ambit you know given everything we just said there is still something very striking about like the disjunction between the idealism and the the sort of the freedom and the investment in the human and the creative and 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 these sorts of things and like sort of the philosophical and like having the big you know having these experiences with with like like aesthetically and intellectually shaping influences and then being like now go do a job and like i i do think that there is a contradiction there that the novel is pointing to and that frankly even if in our sort of more impoverished state of intellectual life like is still is still true like like people at elite colleges like part of the elite thing is that you get to have the luxury of taking those classes like that's that's part of what you know even if it is on the same continuum of accreditation and getting access to higher paying jobs in different industries 
what one of the things that marks the difference between elite and, and, and sort of more accessible higher ed is like, oh, at the elite places, like you're going to get that kind of polish, you know, that sort of <laughs> that cultural <laughs> polish that that they're not going to be able to offer you at, at the community college, or at least by and large. Um, so that's just something that, that sort of comes out of this question for me. What about the notion of exploring the intellectual world as temptation, which appears here? Like, what about that part? Is the novel uh, saying something definitive and perhaps condemning the arts um, in particular as excessive or unnecessary? Because if that's the case, and I suspect that's a misreading, if that's the case, then figures like Schoenberg, who are throwing out the conventional to embrace new worlds in sound and music, who are so roundly condemned by Nazi Germany, whose interest is in the patrimony of, of this ridiculous myth- mythology. Such, su- such as they saw it, yeah. Right. Exactly, right. It's, it's, you know, it's fictitious, of course. It's mythological. Um, then it seems to be at odds, in other words, with, if that's the message, which I think it is not, then it seems to be at odds with embracing a central figure who... Uh, politically is resisting this regime. Um, And I recognize there's a danger here in flattening out the novel into um, a mere political allegory, which it's not simply, but Mm -hmm. what's your take? Right. I think the the question about temptation still keeps me grounded in like teaching at a liberal college today where like it can seem like a humanities degree is like you're, you're like you've made a bad deal with the devil like you get to you get to do cool interesting things but then like someone's gonna be like but you're not gonna get a job with that you know like there's that sort of that sort of thing so like i think the temptation is like part of that where people are like well i want to study what i want to study uh but then they have like this anxiety that they're, it, they're, it's going to limit their job prospects when in truth i think that honestly like uh i still think that elitism and intellectual pedigree uh probably those perceived intellectual pedigree, like it probably actually matters little what you study, you know, like if you're not, if you're not like in computer science or something like that, right? Like then that's like very particular, but like, you know, like plenty of people with humanities degrees go to, go to medical school, right? Like it's, it's, it's obviously doing it in itself is not necessarily going to limit your career, especially if you're coming out of a, an elite institution, but I, that's, but there, that's, this is a discourse, right? That it's like, you know, and it's, it's the reason the sort of making sure the temptation can't happen is why uh, religion departments and German departments and language departments are being shuttered across uh, the country right now is because they're not, they're not practical. So why distract, you know, or like West Virginia, like most infamously recently, or the University of Vermont. So like this, you know, like this, you know, trying to get people to not have that temptation seems to be part of the point here uh, for me. When, just looking at this, I don't think obviously I, in terms of the question of whether the novel is like critical of the arts uh, because of the inevitable road to temptation they present. I think my my sort of take on it would be that Mon imagines that this is tragic, that it's that like, you know, and like it's hard to say like we can't imagine any of these characters are just speaking or just him ventriloquizing through imaginary people but it does seem to be the case that he sees like serious creative endeavor as involving danger 
and whether you need to like go the whole way is one thing. Um, but I do, yeah, I do think that it's like sort of a tragic sensibility and like, right. We go back to the, to Christopher Marlowe, you know, it's sort of a tragical history. We, we can argue whether Marlowe's play is actually a tragedy or not. It doesn't actually seem to be, but at least maybe, maybe Mon is rehabilitating the tragic in the Faustian encounter in a way that kind of goes beyond what even Goethe or Marlowe do. He's trying to like actually bring the tragic back, back into it. Yeah. Thank you for that. I think um, part of me was wondering as I read, well, okay, is there a place where, is there a mean here? Is there a, <laughs> yeah. um, is there, uh, this is good up to a point and the temptation is a matter of degree. And that idea came up to me when I was reading this passage that we will get to in which the idea of extremes is so appealing to yeah. our protagonist, Adrian, that um, the, the sure it's hell where he's headed, but because there's something aesthetically, stylistically pleasing to him about hell as a place because it's full of people who went all the way, <laughs> who did yeah. not hold back. And that, that right. seems most appropriate to him. Right. But maybe we right, should talk right, right. a little bit more about this yeah, let's, Faustian let's bargain. Get into the devil, the devil part about this a little bit. Yeah. So, if maybe you can explain to our our listeners how Adrian ends up in a deal with the devil, if that's how we want to make sense of this. Yeah. Sure. So we've got a a letter to Zeitbaum, um, in which Adrian describes a devilish tour guide taking him around the city of Leipzig, right, and he leads him to a bordello. And Adrian goes in, he has an encounter with a sex worker whom he nicknames or calls Esmeralda after a butterfly his father had studied, but he rushes off. Uh, he or she, sorry, rushes off. Yeah, he, he does. She touches him, she touches his face and he just like kind of freezes and rushes out of the place. Yeah, well, I'm sure many a sex worker has had this experience with a client before. Anyway, eventually he tracks her down in Austria-Hungary and they uh, sleep together. But she warns him first that she has syphilis. But that seems not to bother him, or in any case, he just goes for it. Later in Italy, the devil appears before Adrian to chat about what has happened. And he reveals that by doing this, Adrian has more or less entered into a pact by way of infection, right? And he has 24 years to do his great work, his work of genius, um, that is this through this uh, incredible ability, uh, this genius um, in music in particular and composition that the devil is going to give him. Um, but then at the end of this, of course, he's going to die from the disease and go to hell. So, how does this compare with our most recent example of the Faustian bargain in Mephisto? What would you say, Klaus? Right, right. yeah, we can compare it to Mephisto or we can compare it to any of the Faustian yeah. bargains we've seen thus far. I uh, mentioned earlier that the the bargain in Mephisto is a bargain f like sort of that comes out of careerism. It's like you can, and this is also about a career too, but this is like a little bit deeper. Both, this is interesting too. Adrian and Hendrik are both artists. Uh, Hendrik Hupkin from, from last episode, they're both artists. So they're both doing it for the art in a certain way. But like, but Hendrix is like, he's, he cares too much what people think about him. I think, you know, he's like a ham. Adrian, I don't think is a fuck. Like, like really, <laughs> like, you know, that's, this is, this is the impression you get. He just like, doesn't care what people think. He's like really... 
He's really like sort of born, he's like really boring into his craft. Would you say that the temptation in uh, Klausmann's work is centered around success and the temptation here is centered around genius and personal accomplishment? Like accomplishment, yeah, is sort of the meeting ground. Like there's accomplishment in both, but how do you measure that accomplishment is different in the two? Is that right? No, that's that's great. That's I think it's a great question because I think in Klausmann's work, uh, Hendrik Kopkin by the end realizes that he's a failure aesthetically. Mm-hmm. He he see he's like okay, well I got a lot of money and prestige inside the Nazi regime through Nazi patronage, but I'm actually like a mediocre failure, and that's not gonna be what happens with Adrian. <laughs> right? He's gonna <laughs> he's gonna like do great work, right? Like that's mm-hmm. the that's the tragic part about it. Is he's like he's the, the you know and whether. It's worth it is one of the questions of the novel, right? Like, is it worth? What is it worth to do great work? Like, what is the what what cost is 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 appropriate for doing like transcendent, like paradigm breaking uh, work? You know, and that's that's a question that Mons sort of seeming to, to to pose here. Is it the case that he composes his super great, you know, magnum opus? And actually, the word opus and the word work is contested in the in the passage that I read, but. Is it true that he composes it and that it's not actually performed and he spins out into his um, his illness or his delirium? Well, so far, I'm still not. Oh, you're not there yet. Point. Never mind. I'm to not be gonna, revealed. But I will, I will say I will say he composes and then he ha- he has a, he's sort of a cult composer. Like he's not a huge success and a lot of people hate what he does. But and I think it's like sort of parallels the avant garde like Stravinsky or Schoenberg. I, I know Stravinsky a little bit better. Uh, so, you know, thank you. Thank you, Walt Disney and Fantasia, you know. Uh, <laughs> 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 I, don't think, I don't think Arnold Schoenberg made it onto Fantasia. Um, sadly, but, uh, sadly. The Rights of Spring, the Rights of Spring did. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, he's a cult. He's like sort of a cult figure and then world war one happens and like he's invited to go to paris but he obviously can't do that anymore because the countries are at war with each other and stuff so he is like but he's kind of obscure but he has like people who like seek him out he's like a little circle in munich of people who who know about his genius and then like you know he's it's it's he's like he's like indie i would say but like still like basically content to seal himself off live in like a, a sort of upscale or like a nice boarding house in the country and just like work and not see anyone and not be bothered. So yeah, it is. I think that is like a major difference between him and what we saw in the last episode. Um, other thing, like we compare, like, so the devil comes and tells him, Oh, like when you contracted syphilis from that sex worker, you entered into this deal. What's different about that from some of the other versions of the foul story we've seen? Well, I think if I can generalize about them, the devil presents the option and says, hey, I'm going to give you all this great stuff. And in return, you're going to come join me when you die. You're going to die and then you're going to go to hell and it's going to be awful for all of eternity. And one of the great uh, stumbling blocks for the more literal minded of us is like, who would accept such a Right. We said that from the the Christopher Marlowe part, especially. Yeah. It's never, it's not worth it. (laughs) It's never going to be worth it. It's worth it for us to watch the crazy stuff that happens in that play, but it's not obviously not worth it for, for uh, Dr. Faustus. Yeah. Yeah. But it feels like a conceit, right? We need that for the story to work. 
um, and we all just accept it. Um, here, that it's already been, it's a fait accompli, is yeah, yeah. a bit of a surprise. But I, what I find most interesting is that that is, there's still a negotiation, kind of. There's still an exchange, a kind of exchange of words between the two of them, and it's flirtatious, and it's super intellectual, and it's engaging, and he is still asking questions as if as if he's considering, well, what will happen? What's going to happen? Yeah. You know, quote unquote, if I accept, even though perhaps the um, the ink is already drying on the page in a certain sense. And I love that kind of suspension of time in a decision that's that's always already made. Um, as I said, so my partner also has a job offer <laughs> right now that oh. just arrived for a new for a new job, and he's deciding how to tell the, his coworkers. So all of you podcast listeners who <laughs> know my partner, <laughs> okay, <edit this> out. <laughs> I guess I'm just announcing it now. Um, but this moment of um, of being right in the center of a decision that is um, in some senses already happened, but in others not made real. That I, I really love about how this is portrayed. What about you? What did you right. think of this? Um, yeah. uh, and also the, what did you make of the disease as, and the sexual sexually transmitted infection in particular as the way that one contracts a deal with the devil does it contracts that's a great that's a great thank pun. you yeah, thank you I love that. I love that. and love does that. that harken back in some ways to the um much earlier um antecedents to my knowledge not faustian at all wherein in particular around witchcraft the pactum cum diabolo is accomplished through sex with the devil sex yeah that's really great. And earlier in the, the scenes in university, there are lectures about witchcraft. So that he, that, that could be something that he's dealing with there. Yeah. Well, so one of the ways to sort of think about it is, is the giving into sexual desire. Like, what does it mean that that is essentially like making a deal with the devil? Right. Right. There's almost like kind of like a traditional kind of moralism to that where it's like, well, you had sex with her. So you did it. And like he does. So like Adrian writes a bit, very strange letter to Zeitblom about being like sort of being new in town in Leipzig, you know, being the kind of country, country mouse in the big city and, and being led around town and being hungry and wants a bite to eat. And this guy like deposits him at this portello. And uh, so we have like a, a devilish kind of figure there who drops him off. But like, it seems like, like the real, the deal part would be, oh, you were really aroused. And this woman told you, like, if you do this, you are going to incur, there's a great risk that you're going to get sick too. And he just goes for it. So we could see it as the sort of prudish morality of like, you had sex, that's a deal with the devil. Or you could see it as like, you not only had sex, but you basically just like jumped off a high dive, you know, into the, like down the Hoover dam or something. Like you like, you just like, you were like, so like, don't give an F about everything. And there's a kind of, um, I don't know, like nihilistic indulgence or like a nihilistic aestheticism to this whole thing where you just, you're just like, Oh, I'm willing to like do the one swan dive as long as the dive looks beautiful. And like, I don't care, you know? Um, 
So I don't know. Maybe that's a way to make sense of it. Oh, as, yeah. As how it's a deal. You know? that's, a, that's a great reading because in that moment of accepting really outrageous consequences, you are mirroring what it is to accept the Faustian bargain. That's you've already done yeah, exactly. it in miniature. Exactly. It's a yeah. it's a figure yeah. for the decision, which is always already made here. Wow, that's awesome, and I love that. Um, the other thing I wondered about here is a parallel between. Are you familiar with bug chasers? This term. No. This is out of this. This term comes out of the AIDS crisis. I don't know oh. it, if it emerges in the '80s or '90s, um, but it's a shorthand for. Uh, people who seek out HIV infection as a form of participation of <laughs> contractual uh, partic- participation in the community and the population, cause, yeah. the cause of what it means to be socially ostracized and medically ostracized um, because of um identity identities yeah yeah um, between right. men who have sex with men and um between people who are hiv positive all of those things um that they want to be part i think of. that's a perfect comparison to this because one of the strange things about adrian is this is the only time he has sex you know <laughs> this is the, this is it bless and him so, like it, um he one of the paradoxes of the novel is that he is like like monastic they use comparison a lot in the novel he's like you know into the asceticism and there's something like extremely dramatically ascetic about getting yourself contract you know chasing the bug right mm-hmm. like to, to be out of solidarity like you're you're doing it i mean you get off on it on some level but like you're doing it for like these political and moral reasons too and like i think that's a great way of making sense of what he's doing like you might ask like you know, in the, in the example you're giving, well, you're actually then concretely part of this community, like, you know, by virtue of what you did and what you contracted. It's not clear to me what Adrian thought if like what he saw as any kind of positive, like solidarity coming out of his, his venereal disease. So that's maybe a difference. My question is at what point might he be aware that syphilitic, um, melancholic genius was on offer because I see it in the chapter focused on the conversation with the devil. It certainly appears there that there's a really fascinating, the, um, the devil asserts, exchange. this is going to make you a genius. Yes. This is yeah. Like, the de- like this is this, like you got the syphilis and like what part of the devil, what the devil's offering is like, you're going to have 24 years, but oh, how are you going to spend those 24 years? This this disease is going to like get your brain doing wacky, interesting things. And you're going to, you know, you're going to suffer madness so the masses don't have to. So it's almost like it's kind of like Christological, like soteriology to aesthetic soteriology to it. Oh, um, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, it also feels there's also reference in that chapter to German romanticism. And I think yeah. this this element of genius born of disease, of melancholia this is yeah, all yeah. part and parcel of that larger and like uh dynamic well, and the devil is so german here did you oh, what did you yeah. make of that um well and they, they, you know it's weird and this is this is i will say one thing and and talk about that too there 
the other thing where you were saying like, well, did Adrian know about this ahead of time? Yeah. Well, the the person, the sort of most famous person in Germany who got syphilis and did really creative things was Friedrich Nietzsche, right? You know, so like mm-hmm. <laughs> that's like kind of one of the the sort of the the sort of main archetypes or historical figures who like are sort of working their way into the Adrian's character as an allegory. And you can sort of see like the way the Nazis use Nietzsche or appeal to Nietzsche. Like, you know, you can sort of see like this as like sort of allegorizing like uh, German intellectuals obsession with the irrational, in this case, born directly out of a syphilitic uh, condition. Um, So yeah, but in terms of how German, so I think that's something to, so it is possible what you're saying that he did have some understanding of this. And you, you asked, he's so German. He insists on speaking German. Adrian, uh, when, they, when you know, Ad, the, the devil, Adrian's just like sort of hanging out in Italy and he, had, he was sick. He, Adrian has migraines. And so he periodically has to like once or twice a month is just like out of commission and feels really terrible. And so this happens after one of these migraines. And he's sitting around and this guy just appears in the study and the guy looks like a pimp. He's got red hair and he's got like tight pants and he just like sort of looks like someone from this someone some street tough i think is one of the ways it's translated <laughs> yeah like strazi or something like that and, it, and and uh and adrian like talks to him in italian and devil's like no 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 we're speaking german you know <laughs> so yeah so it, it is it is uber deutsch and i said before adrian himself is kind of like doing his own like ren like sort of formal old-fashioned german thing a lot too this kind of gets into a one of the big questions about this scene because the the sex worker was like oh you're gonna get syphilis if you you sleep with me um one of the the things that adrian himself says is like am i just going crazy like are you even real so this is like one of the major the major sorts of dramas like you know tensions of the whole thing is like is this all a fantasy is he really talking to the devil what does it mean to say he's really talking to the devil is like what it happens if we assume that it's just his psychosis. I mean, what, I don't know. Like what, like just to, you know, just that, that that's like sort of like the main thing. And the reason I bring this up with your question about how German the, the devil is, well, Adrian's like, you only do and know things that I seem to know already. Like in some ways the devil is aping Adrian. Like he, you know, he's, he's sort of like recapitulating parts of adrian's like experiencing characteristics so yeah like do you think it matters whether he's real like or like what what, what did you make of all this what made me giggle about that part of the explicit conversation am i even real right um the devil himself says does it matter and it just (laughs) seems like i'm back in my master's program studying theology and learning about the religious studies approach to I say the, a predominant (laughs) religious studies approach to the supernatural, to elements of the supernatural when studying religion, which is to lay the question aside essentially and say, well, okay, does it, how does it matter to the people who believe that? How does that affect people who don't believe that? Um, What are the effects of this belief to the communities and people and society and culture around? And so to me, it seemed like an explicit reference to this approach. Yeah. Um, such that. No, yeah, it's like a philosophical pragmatism. Yeah. He's like, 
uh, dummy, it doesn't matter <laughs> if I'm real or not. No one cares. Um, <laughs> uh, what is this doing to you? This is We're here. I'm here in this moment. Right. We are talking. So what is my... Right. Objective like, reality like, matter. He's yeah. like, he's like, he's like, you're so bourgeois. Yes. Like, like, who, like. <laughs> <laughs> it so it just feels like, Klaus, if you were visited by the devil, this is a line the devil would totally use on you, right? Like, well, does it really matter, Klaus? Like, he's aping it's, your whole training. It's like, oh, Klaus, you took that class in pragmatism. Like, what happened to that? You know? <laughs> I thought you were so committed. You're always dunking on your students when they try to, like, bring up objectivity <laughs> and subjectivity. <laughs> oh, man. So it was really hard for me to see past that uh, as my yeah. sort of initial reaction to it. it I, I suppose, and here I am doing it, right? I'm about to perform it. For Adrian, the question seems to matter a lot, um, but gets laid aside. We just move on after that. There's no um, decision on the part of Adrian. And so, sure, it's a moment of tension, but the devil wins that point. It's like, score, score, yeah, you know, say, one for the devil, zero for Adrian at this point. I do think that's true. And so one of the, one of the, like, objective, like, it's not even, I guess you could argue, you could argue this too. One of the things that's true about the devil is that he emits, like, a piercing coldness. Like, there's a palpable chill that comes off of him. And... Adrian has to like change. He's like in Italy, right? It's like not exactly cold there. And he has to go and change. He's got to go and like put on like this overcoat and like to sit and talk with this guy. And like, what did you make of the fact that the devil is like an open freezer door the entire time such that he's making people like physically uncomfortable sitting next to him? Well, several things came to mind. Um, the first was weirdly spiritualism. So mm. we're not quite in the heyday. We're, we're a few decades after the biggest currents of this. And I don't know what this was like in Germany. I'm more familiar. That's a great question. Yeah. I'm more familiar with England. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah, I'm yeah. giggling at my murder mystery. Conan um, Doyle. You just can't get past. Conan I can't Doyle. today. And I'm so yeah. sorry about it. But um, this idea that supernatural presences uh, of the dead in particular are marked in one way by a sudden coldness in the air, you know that there's a ghost there because it's cold suddenly as you pass through the mansion in this one area where the child died, you know, 60 years ago and no one knew about it. So that that came up. But then after that, my next reaction was, no, 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 this is um, Dante. This is the frozen mm, Satan. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, there are separate reasons for that there. I didn't search in Dante for the meaning of, as to why this devil is cold. But there is an explanation that's in the text itself. And of course, are we to take it at face value? Who knows? Who cares? Um, but it's important to mention that the devil is cold <laughs> because hell is hot and it makes it possible <laughs> for the devil to like withstand being there for forever. The logic, of course, doesn't work because so is everyone else there. But yeah. then there's this interesting... Um, relation that you get to choose in hell, whether you want to be cold or hot and everyone keeps yeah. switching back and forth because they think they're going to have relief, but it's instantaneous torture of another kind. And so no relief is ever possible, which right. maybe gets right. us right. too soon into what it No, that's, that's right. No, that's totally, you're, that's totally fine. And that's totally right to say that that is the reason the devil says it's kind of a joke. It's like, yeah, I mean, I've got to hang out in hell. Like, give me a break. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, why do you think, dummy? You know? 
It's like you got air conditioning in Florida, right? Like, come on. Um, you don't have air conditioning in Germany, though. So, yeah. Especially not in the 1920s or 19-teens or, um, or in Italy, for that matter. Um, so there's that. I think that's a great, that's a great point. The devil also keeps shape-shifting. He sort yeah. of goes from being looking like a kind of uh, tough guy, sort of petty criminal, to looking like, like – it gets very specific. He looks like someone who's like a university-trained intellectual who uh, writes like for the Fuyutan and like like does like sort of amateur musical criticism. And you're like, okay, like that's a very particular <laughs> – you had a very particular thing in mind there. Um, and Adrian gets more comfortable with him as he changes into this kind of like more intellectual uh, person. And then he changes back by the end of it. He changes back into like this, this sort of like tough looking thing. Oh, which is the yeah, best the- part, right? His changing back mm. was so great for me because it's like, you know, that seemed like a parlor trick on the one hand. Yeah. Like, oh, I've gotten you into a comfortable place. I found a form that you're most comfortable with. And it was a trick, but then the best, the master stroke is saying, actually, I can just be the naked devil in front of you in a more recognizable form, more, you know, reference again, back to um, street toughs and perhaps pimping and sex workers. Right. Yeah. Um, So a little bit of an eye roll there that we had to do that, but I love that there was no pretense anymore. Here I am. I actually, to close this deal, I can just be me and you're still going to take it because of course, as you've argued, you've already taken the bait. So, right. Yeah, totally. Totally. The thing the devil says is like, Oh, like I, I don't know how I look, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. Like, I like just, he didn't even notice it. Like, Oh, is that what I look like? <laughs> it's like, I don't want right. I, I just, I just manifest here. Like I just, you know, I appear, you know, like I don't, I'm not in control of what's going on. It's really <laughs> funny. It's like, totally, totally refusing any responsibility for anything. It's like, this isn't some master plan. Like I just, they just send me out here and I look like different ways. Sometimes. <laughs> it's really funny. Um, so one of the things that the devil does in this interview is he's like, Oh, it's, he, he keeps, they keep having these theological discussions, but the devil will be like, well, you stopped studying theology. Remember you chose music and we love that. Every time someone who's really smart, like you gets into music, the little devil's ears like prick up and we're like, Oh yeah, we got one. Um, <laughs> and he, he's like, well, it's like he claims music as a kind of demonic medium and art. Why, why does the devil get to have music? Like what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. I got down some weird rabbit hole last night about this in particular and thinking about the the Palestrina. So, you know, there's this there's this 20th century opera about Palestrina in which it composes the Misa Pape Marcellus. I don't remember at all which language I'm supposed to be speaking when I say that. So (laughs) apologies, whatever that is Um, that there's this whole legend that this work is what saved polyphony from the council of Trent. So the story goes council of Trent was suspicious of certain kinds of music because music is always suspicious. That's where I'm actually going with this. There's something in Christian theological parlance where music, there's a suspicion around music and we can go lots of different places with that. Um, But you know, first of all, and most importantly, rock and roll is the devil's music as everyone knows. (laughs) But once upon a time in this legend, polyphony was the, um, was the devil's music (laughs) because it obscured the words and the words are what's important. The lyrics are what's important in Uh. church music, according to this legend. And so the clarity with which 
polyphonic music could yet express a textual theological message is supposedly what saved the Council of Trent from condemning polyphony outright. And it turns out that's there's not actually evidence for that, but that. Um, but who cares? It's a good. Story. Who cares? It's a good story, right? So <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's. It doesn't matter if I'm really here or not. You know. Yeah, um, but I think also interestingly, the way German Romanticism appears in this section of the novel, a suspicion, an association of music with emotionality and with affect and the loss of control and rationality. We have this cold, rational figure who is yet seduced by. It's both. By, it's right? both. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's both emotion and it's also like. Oh, you're like the, the contrapuntal, like exact algebraic, like, you know, like sort of like doing trigonometry with like tones and chords and stuff. And like this like incredibly complicated composition that has like this sort of like grid like mathematical, like calculus to the whole thing. So it's both emotional and it's both like, like sort of, again, Faustian, like you're trying to control the elements of nature. And, and yeah, that's 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 it. Yeah. Which is why Schoenberg gets the shout out here, or doesn't get the shout out until the revision of this novel, that actually the 12 tone system that's referenced here, which can sound like, (laughs) uh, to the untrained ear, can sound like a child mashing randomly on piano notes, right? But it's not, Mm. that's not what it is. But this, um, that breaks out of the language of tonal harmony that is the entirety of the Western canon (laughs) up until this point. Um, I think that's why that is chosen. When Mann is doing the research and who isn't himself a musician is trying to figure out, well, how do I tell the story in a way that makes sense? I think that's chosen. This kind of music is chosen for that reason, that it brings together, as you said, both emotion and then also this, um, this mathematical element, really. Right. Right, and he knew, and he knew Schoenberg. He he corresponded with a lot of composers, but he actually did know Schoenberg. Anyway, so we have this discussion of how the devil, the how like music is like the sort of the devil's art, and the sort of co- the connection between the intellectual rigor, the sort of will to power and manipulating the elements, and the loss of emotional control that sort of all wrapped up through all of this. And I think this kind of helps us start to answer that question as to why. Faust is a composer and not, you know, you could say like, why wasn't Faust Oppenheimer? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, you know, yeah. like there are other, other like German American figures at this time who are like doing like Faustian science and stuff. And it's really interesting that it's, it's very deliberately chosen in the arts in, in music. And I think that that's like, we still might, we haven't answered that question entirely. I feel why so culture, called out by culture, the way. I feel so called out by this novel that that both music and theology come up so prominently. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, no, right, yeah, exactly. That m- music and theology are like like totally at the center of like this demonic, tragic like story of how Germany became Nazified. Yeah, and this <laughs> is how Hitler lot. rose to power, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, well, the conversation they have wraps up with a discussion a lot of things happen in this conversation we can't like hope to do justice to all of it i mean the devil like comes forward with his own theory of where musical composition has hit a wall 
in the West that apparently is lifted straight from Adorno's writings on, <laughs> on music. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I couldn't help, I couldn't hope to recapitulate in any kind of sophistication or entirety. I, this is the one thing I wanted to say before, like the, a lot of the, you did a great job, I think, sort of speaking to the composition stuff uh, and the musical theory. A lot of that goes over my head at reading this it's like it's not my it's not my background if people want to come on the pod and fire off their classical music takes on, on schoenberg <laughs> and faust i invite you to come and explain like how like this is how this sort of speaks to your experience or expertise in music because it like i can sort of abstractly follow along and there there are sections where i can make the connection like uh, kretschmar has this great lecture about beethoven that like I sort of listened to this late Beethoven and like had this epiphany because like the late Beethoven sounded a lot like jazz. And it's one of these things where like people say like, Oh, like jazz comes from classical music in part. And you're like, yeah, 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 whatever. And then you, I hear some Beethoven piano sonatas. I'm like, Oh yeah, now I I hear that very clearly now. (laughs) And that was, that was interesting. One of the great things about reading a book like this is Mon is like weaving in all these other works of art. And so one of the, uh, operas and librettos that's like a central thing in the novel is uh from shakespeare love's labor's lost and this is my jeremy brett thing because i hadn't read or seen love's labor's lost sadly to this point and i went on youtube found like a 1972 or 1973 british play for today like 1970 show and jeremy brett was like one of the main leads in in it um hold on hold on let me get the name of the character i thought we were friends klaus this is the first time hearing of this. Thanks a lot. I'll, Thanks a I'll lot. send you the link. I'll send you the link right now. Um, hold on a second. He's like the smart ass character. Leslie. Um, Barone. Jeremy Betts Barone, who's like the sort of the, is the skeptical, cynical, like funniest, smartest character. Asi- aside from, there's another, he has, he meets his match with um, Lady Rosaline. They're like the sort of like the, sort of the two smart, funny ones in the play. But yeah, um, I will put the link to this in the show notes. This Jeremy Brett performance is incredible. Uh, Shakespeare rocks, etc. Um, we've already discussed this uh, on the pod, but yeah, it, it's tied me in. It's looped me into all this other art that I hadn't had the chance to get into. And so one of the things I really like about it. So yeah, a little bit of a tangent, but anyway, the novel, this, this, the chapter that we're sort of focusing on occurs right at the center of the novel if you're a disciple of Leo Strauss, you know that all the important secrets of text happen directly <laughs> in the center of them <laughs> for the esoteric reading. So there you go. Um, but the, the end of this conversation, this chapter is Adrian's like, well, what's hell like? Like you keep telling me that you're going to get, you're going to have control over me, body and soul. Like, why don't you just like, give me a little bit more detail here about what's going on. You know, Adrian asked this question, what's hell like? And the devil is like, I can't really tell you what what it's like. And it, he's not just trying to be coy. Only it is not easy actually to speak thereof. That is, one can really not speak of it at all because the actual is beyond what by word can be declared. Many words may be used and fashioned, but altogether they are but tokens standing for names which do not and cannot make claim to describe what is never to be described and denounced in words. That is the secret delight and security of hell, that it is not to be informed on, that it is protected from speech, that it just is, 
but cannot be public in the newspaper, be brought by any word to critical knowledge, wherefore precisely the words subterranean, cellar, thick walls, soundlessness, forgottenness, hopelessness, are the poor, weak symbols. One must just be satisfied with symbolism, my good man, when one is speaking of hell, for there everything ends. Not only the word that describes, but everything altogether. This is indeed the chiefest characteristic, and what in most general terms is to be uttered about it, both that which, both that which the newcomer thither first experiences, and what at first with his, as it were, sound senses he cannot grasp and will not understand, because his reason or what limitation soever of his understanding prevents him, in short, because it is quite unbelievable enough to make him turn white as a sheet, although it is open to him at once on greeting, in the most emphatic and concise words that here everything leaves off. Every compassion, yeah. every grace, every sparing, he goes on. Yeah, it goes on. But I thought this was great to talk about because you and I have spent some considerable time thinking about what's called apophasis or negative theology. And here the devil, when asked to describe the nature and effects of hell, makes resorts to this most traditional of Orthodox Christian devices, that is apophatic or negative theology, a theology or diabology in this case that uh, deals with negations and refuses to refuses to, con- to to allow language and reason to adequately represent what the object of representation is supposed to be. So, uh, yeah, I was wondering, you know, do, when, you, when you came upon this reading this chapter, like how you reacted to the devil's turn to apophasis as a way of explaining and not explaining hell or refusing to explain hell or explaining it indirectly. Peals of laughter. Peals of laughter is how I reacted to this section. <laughs> And that's because one can imagine that in a, in a way, this is the devil's own piety showing forth that apophasis can be understood as um, paying homage to something, deep homage to something. Well, it can't be described in words. It's so beyond description um, in a theological, in, in its theological roots. That's what it was used for. But there was always inherently a danger in Christian theology because on the one hand, apophasis is a technique used to, to not describe God, most importantly, um, that God is beyond language. What evil is beyond is not language, but existence. Evil has no being. Mm, it is, uncre- it is yeah. the uncreated. Um, but that always has a danger of circling back because God is uncreated. Yeah. Um, and right. so there's yeah. this complicated little dance that we can do here. So, so is this the devil's own piety? I, I don't know. Um, but I, it did evoke that for me one other way of, but there are many other ways of reading and one, it. One thing on that too. I mean, in, in Dante, for example, and in, in other accounts that are maybe even more orthodox, like God makes hell. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, yeah. it's like the devil didn't make it, you know? So, yeah, I think like, again, like that's maybe part of the piety is that it's like actually the structure is also something that can't be wrapped up in words because, you know, all of this was done out of eternal love, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. like, <laughs> that this is, this is part of the eternal love that God has is the, uh, is the, is the like totally speech like this, this thing that robs you of speech because it's so horrible, 
Like, right, right. It's, like <laughs> it's a play. So the other one, other great way to read this is it's a play on the the um, Christian theological move of using apophasis to evoke God, to unsay God. Um, speaking of theology and the devil, there's one more moment I feel feel like this brings to mind from this passage mm. from this chapter, and that is the devil's claim that he is the most theological. Um, sort of character <laughs> that's ever that that right. Thomas Mann has ever faced like look at I, I'm the one like I am the culmination of your theological studies in some ways I am a I'm, I'm a the divine only theologian figure. left this is it it's like Al Pacino oh, right. it's like Al Pacino it's like Al Pacino in uh, Devil's Advocate it's yeah. like uh, I'm like in, in, for Al Pacino it's like I'm the last humanist <laughs> yeah. it's like, I'm the last theologian so right and it, that gets back to the cult culture connection which is made in this chapter it may also be earlier the idea is certainly earlier from what you described in the novel but the falling away that the falling away is what's left of German culture around theology Germany at this point is is this is a an evocation of secularism right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh well maybe not secularism um but of this moment in which the last yeah the de-christianization thank you and that the devil is the last <laughs> believer <laughs> right. um, and so this seems that, that, right no, i think that's great yeah this seems so You're consonant right. with that yeah. to use apophasis yeah. in this yeah. way yeah. seems like oh okay yeah, well totally. you are playing the good it's sort very of orthodox Christ it's very you're an orthodox, orthodox yeah. devil here and i there's something really <laughs> pleasurable about that yeah right no that's i think that's great yeah and like for me like i think it's it is really funny but I will say, like, the other things that the devil will say about hell in this, by directly or indirectly, I find, like, it's some of the most chilling, like, representations of hell I've ever encountered. He, because he, what, he, what he does is he says, like, hell, like, like syphilis, hell doesn't do anything new to you. It only brings out what you are and brings out your extremes. Like... And so there, there's that claim. And the syphilis is the link between Adrian's life and the hell that's awaiting him because his what's going to enable him to do genius work is the fact that he's going to occupy himself. He's going to be occupied in the ex, in, at extreme realms of existence, from the hot to the cold. That he's going to feel intense pleasure and intense pain. There's going to be no medium. And from that, like, sort of springing back and forth, he's going to create this great work. But that's what hell's going to be like. Hell's going to be, as you were saying before, like you're either really hot or really cold, but you can't get satisfaction. There's no getting out of the burning, like the eternal desire or the eternal hatred. Because one of the things that I found really chilling about hell in the way that Estevla describes it is he's like, it's like a mixture of torture, of pleasure, of, and of anger, of shame, shame. And all of these things conspire to make sure that none of the damned can ever feel solidarity or sympathy for each other. You, they're mocking each other. Like they're, you know, and for me, that was like, that sort of psychological angle was so disturbing that he, you know, he's sort of, and I see, you can see this in real life. Like I think that's, I think why it's so disturbing is you can see this in real life where like people are atomized and kept from actually helping each other and having relationships in our culture so like so so entirely and so thoroughly and so it's sort of a it's sort of a like a prefiguration but that this vision of people who are consumed with like 
the sort of the whole range of human emotions and its extremes from pleasure to shame, like bringing pleasure and shame together, like, like so like directly and making them indiscernible um, is like a way of, of representing hell. And I just, you know, it's, it's still, it's, it's more abstract. It's obviously less figurative than, than Dante. It reminded me of a bit of the part in the portrait of James Joyce's portrait of an artist as a young man, where the, the Jesuit sermon, the, you know, sermonizer is, is like, uh, like, giving the homily about hell and describing hell and like describing the eternity of hell. Like that's pretty, pretty chilling. And it scares the shit out of the James Joyce character in the, in the book. But I I don't know, like I actually found this, like I'm not usually someone who's like totally freaked out by this stuff, but I actually found this was like a really chilling account of what hell would be like. I don't know like whether you, you felt similarly or differently, but I did for me, the moment though was slightly, I also, yes, the, abolition of solidarity felt so hopeless um that that definitely struck a chord with me the other moment was that people who (laughs) habitually avoid blasphemy are become blasphemers in hell in a kind of apathetic move there is nothing else that is possible to say the only language available to you because you are totally surrounded by um that which is can't be said right this is another apophatic yeah, move. but that yeah. thing the most awful the most horrible things are all that's left for you in your vocabulary and that robbing you of your sense of expression also felt as a talker yeah it also yeah. felt like deeply yeah. deeply sad right and you will say these things about yourself and others like you know in the same breath yeah yeah really chilling really chilling it's also so chilling because this is how it ends you know, like this is like it. We end with hell, and the and then poof, the devil's gone. And it's also it's also so chilling because Adrian goes from talking to the devil to talking to his friend in the same breath, and he's just like, wait, what? You know, he's sort, you know, it's sort of like there's no there's no like ending to it. He just sort of snap, it just sort of snaps into a new focus point, and that's like so strange. But one one like last thing to say about this is the devil's like. Uh, oh, I know why you want to know about this. I know why you want to get details on hell. Um, and it's because you think you can scare yourself straight. You think if I tell you like what, what it's like, you're going to push yourself into this like place where you're actually going to be able to repent and get out of this deal but like what's the devil do you remember that with how the devil responds to to that point yeah no remind me think remember remembering Um, is too hard yeah 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 Yeah, it's it's all too horrible he's like he's like well look you're gonna get so accustomed to the extremes of your syphilitic genius condition that you're not gonna be able to actually give it up like you're gonna get addicted to being this way is one thing he says the other thing he says he's like look buddy you think you're so smart like hell's full of people like you who think they're really smart. right. You know, like, you think speculative so theology. He's like, this, yeah, he's like you. He's like this is really clever. What you're doing is clever. Uh, but like we're full. We got. Who do you think we got? You think we just take like anyone off the street here? Like no. Like we want. We want the. We want the big game. It's like smart asses like you who we're going after. <laughs> so it's really funny. But Adrian is. You know, one thing I'll say. You said there's like sort of a seductive quality to this whole thing. For me, this is actually the chapter where Adrian is the most human that I've seen him because he gets angry. He's angry and he's like, he's, he's angry and he's willing to fight. 
like he's he's actually like willing to resist and and, and he he tries to laugh at the devil you know uh he's like because you know, that point you were saying how the devil's like oh the devil shows hell to be something free of solidarity that we found so chilling and the devil's like oh they're like if, to keep going with our bargain there's one thing you can't be in love. Oh, yes. You're not allowed to love anyone. <laughs> and then and Adrian's like, like, are you kidding me? Like, you can't. Like, this whole thing like, is a seduction. So you are in love with me, basically. Yeah. Like, how he, could like, that he possibly tries to make be? Fun of, mm-hmm. He tries to make fun of the devil at every chance that he gets. But he's his his last stand, as it were, is he's like, you're maybe you're right. It's filled up, it's filled up with people like, like me. Um, but he's like, who else can really repent? Who else's repentance is worth a damn? Yeah. Like you have to be a real sinner to like actually <laughs> flip it. And the thing that he's reading when the devil comes to him is Kierkegaard and like this sort of dialectic of, of like the aesthetic and the ethical and like how to reconcile like a world, a world dedicated, a life lived for beauty and a life lived for piety and goodness. Like, I don't know. I really feel like the sort of the Kierkegaardian dialectic is like grinding its gears through the, especially this part where the, the sort of the, the last gambit is no, I am going to live intensely and sin intensely because that's actually what it takes to, that's actually the road to repentance is, is through uh, fucking up so bad. Sin, sin boldly, right? We are in Germany after yeah, all, yeah. right? So yeah, yeah. wait, sin boldly. That is Luther. That's apoc- that's apocryphally Luther, right? Sin, or is it so. or is it What's Augustine? Like- I forgot. It's Luther. What's the difference? Right, What's they're the, the same. It's fine. <laughs> Luther read. It's Luther reading Augustine. It's all fine. <laughs> it's all the same. It's all the same. Um, yeah, no, that's yeah, symbolically exactly. And he is Lutheran. You know, like he, right. he he does. He's drawn to theology. He's he and like Luther was really into music, though not quite to the like level of sophistication. But like, no, he does embody a lot of these sort of Lutheran qualities in in his approach to this stuff. Well, that's super interesting. I'm thinking of Lutheran hymns and how they draw on drinking songs and you know popular yeah. popular songs, yeah, and yeah, they're yeah. in a style that's really accessible. That there's like a weird and that's and that's totally there. different from what the Reform did. The Reform like they they only did psalms. And, and they did metrical psalms and they completely re- they had to completely compose new music because they didn't want to do what the Lutherans did, yeah. which was take over the popular, the popular songs. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, which actually sounds a little bit more what Adrian would be up to. <laughs> like I got to, I'm going to completely do, you know, but he's into parody. So he, I think it does fit with the Lutheran, the Lutheran thing that you're saying. So yeah, we're, this is the halftime report on, <laughs> on Dr. Faustus, 1947, Dr. Faustus part 12 or wherever we're at here. Um, I found that there's a Yiddish Faust that I'll probably do at some point. <laughs> what? Yes, please. That's <laughs> yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, sweatshop Faust. Um, so yeah, look, look out for that. We have a lot of great things coming up. We have a, a special guest star coming up for our Halloween episode. So please be on the lookout for that. But yeah, thank you, Travis, for coming on the pod to talk to me about this tome that I subjected you to. Um it was an, just, just an avalanche, an avalanche of dusty tomes that have just like fallen upon us all and, and you know, buried and it sort of like totally constructed our own hell for us of, of old books. But yeah, it was an unexpected delight. So thank, thank you, Klaus. Glad to hear it. And to, to our it. listeners, thanks for listening. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Ward. Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.